This is The Guardian. Today, Sri Lankan protesters force a president, whose nickname was the Terminator, to resign and flee the country. Now they're asking, what comes next? People just took any means possible to make sure they could get to Colombo. People kind of commandeered trains that weren't supposed to be running. People jumped onto the back of lorries. People piled into buses. People were cycling from cities that were like four or 500 miles away to get there. This was the moment people felt that if they were going to show President Gautabaya Rajapaksa that he needed to go, this was going to be the day. On the 9th of July, protesters flooded into the Sri Lankan capital, Colombo for what organisers called a final push to force the country's president to resign. There's still not exact numbers. Some people say about 700,000 people, which for a country of 22 million is enormous, who surged into the streets of Colombo. And people started to march towards the president's house. There was this huge wall of military personnel, police personnel, there were water cannons, and people just went for it. And they started to ram the gates using police barriers. And there was such a huge force of people that in the end, they actually forced the police and the military to actually abandon their posts. You know, at certain points, military officers actually joined in. One of the first things people did is they went round to the garden and they jumped in the swimming pool. There was a real kind of atmosphere of jubilance. But there was also enormous anger and frustration and sadness. Sri Lanka is experiencing its worst ever economic crisis. As people struggle to find cooking oil and fuel for their cars, they're also banding together to take back the country's politics, starting with the president's house. I went to visit the house about three or four days after this had happened. And, you know, it was kind of incredible. People were still piling in in their thousands. But how does it feel to be walking into the, into the house of the president right now? Can't explain that. Yeah. <laughs> One of the worst presidents in the, in the world, I think. But how does it feel that tomorrow it might be the end, or looks like it's going to be the end? Uh, no, it's a, it's a great puzzle for us. Yeah. Uh, we believe he won't resign. Yeah. As far as that we know. Gotabaya Rajapaksa was once one of the most feared men in Sri Lanka, a hardline nationalist who promised to rule the country with an iron fist. He said he'd unite Sri Lankans, and he did, against his presidency. Now they're trying to uproot the whole system that created him and asking, what can we build in its place? From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how Sri Lankans toppled a president and what they plan to do next. Hannah Ellis-Peterson, you're The Guardian's South Asia correspondent and you're in Colombo as the country experiences some of the most tumultuous days in its history. Incredibly, the Sri Lankan president did not immediately resign after his house was stormed earlier this month. So take me through what happened next. The events of the 9th developed very fast. People took over the presidential palace, the presidential offices, and then they took over the prime minister's house. So then by the evening... Ranul Wickremesinghe, who is the caretaker prime minister, he'd made an announcement saying he would be willing to step down as prime minister 
if an interim all-party government was formed. But there had been no word that day from Gotabaya Rajapaksa. The silence was kind of deafening from the president. There has been another day of confusion, this after days of chaos. By the next day, he had conveyed another message through the prime minister saying, I will step down on the 13th. There was a lot of mistrust around this because for months people have believed that he's holding on to power for his own self-interest to protect himself from prosecution for various allegations of war crimes and corruption because as president he has immunity from prosecution. Obviously it became very apparent as the political pressure began to mount that he had no political legitimacy, and it was impossible for him to hold on to power. So there was suggestions that he was going to resign, but no one really knew what was going to happen. Then on Tuesday, there was an incident where his younger brother, Basil, who was the former finance minister, was still at the airport trying to flee, but he was spotted by other passengers, and the airline staff refused to let Basil Rajapaksa board the flight. This then developed because then Gotabaya Rajapaksa and his wife and an entourage came to the airport and they also tried to board a flight to Dubai. This was on the Tuesday night. But they wanted to go through this VIP section so that they obviously didn't have to be confronted by the general populace who (laughs) had a lot of anger against him. But the airline staff refused to basically manned this booth and said, if you want to get your passport stamped, then you just have to go through the ordinary queues. And he refused to do that with his entourage. Hannah, this is just incredible. One by one, the Rajapaksa family were trying to get out of the country and failing. What happened next? After this all happened, everyone was sort of speculating how he would make this escape. I mean, people were saying he was going to get on a boat. People were saying that India was going to rescue him, which was very vehemently denied by India. So anyway, at the dead of night, he managed to leave the country on a military jet and got himself flown to the Maldives. Sri Lanka's president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, has left the country along with members of his family. So Sri Lanka essentially woke up on that Wednesday morning to a president who had fled the country, but he hadn't resigned. People were expecting him to send his resignation letter when he got to the Maldives. His formal resignation is expected to be announced possibly within the next half hour. But it swiftly became apparent that the Maldives was not his final destination and therefore he wouldn't be submitting his letter. This was the deadline he'd said he would resign, 13th of July. So... That morning, the Speaker of the Parliament said, I've spoken to the President, he's going to resign today. People started to pour into the streets and it became this real kind of waiting game. So do you think that this will be the day that Gotabaya resigns? Do you think, are you... You don't think so? You don't think so? Oh, wow. Why, why, why are you doubtful? He's, he's a man like this. He likes okay, the power. Okay, now, the power is... He's the biggest liar. Yeah. Huh? Biggest liar. And he's biggest liar. It got to midnight on the 13th and there was no resignation. And there was a real sense of tension on the streets. You know, protesters had said, if this doesn't come on the 13th, we will rise up in a way that you have not seen before. And so by this point, there was these rumours going around that Gotabaya was waiting to go somewhere else and that the resignation would come as soon as he landed in his final destination. He lands in Singapore on Thursday afternoon, but there still was no resignation letter. So we've got Thursday evening, late, 
And then a news announcement drops that an email resignation has come through. Sri Lanka's president has reportedly emailed his resignation. That's according to a parliament speaker who says they will make an official announcement tomorrow. But this is tainted by the fact that the constitution states that this resignation has to be in his writing. And there's a lot of confusion about whether or not an email resignation can be counted as the real thing. It then turns out that his letter is then flown from Singapore back to Sri Lanka. So it really wasn't until Friday morning when the speaker made a public address on television and he said, The resignation letter sent by President Gotabaya Rajapaksa has been received by me. Accordingly, the president has legally vacated the post effective from the 14th of July 2022. The mood in the protest camps was... It was pretty electric. People couldn't quite believe what they'd done. Wow, they toppled the president. And now they're raving in the streets. Amazing. But crucially, for the Sri Lankan people, particularly for the protesters, this was by no means the end of the struggle. That is an amazing story, the way virtually a whole society, including airline staff, rose up to chase a president out of his own country. Remind us, Hannah, how did Sri Lanka get here to this point where people were so desperate to change the government? So Sri Lanka is currently going through the worst uh, economic crisis since independence. And what that means on the streets is a time of extreme suffering, of hunger, of pain, for almost every person living in this island because of the economic policies and the mismanagement and the corruption of the government, which was led by President Gotabaya Rajapaksa, who was elected in November 2019. Gotabaya Rajapaksa, a former defence secretary and intelligence officer accused of committing human rights violations, has won Sri Lanka's presidential elections. A series of errors, a series of bad policies, a series of tax cuts and a sort of refusal to confront the problem as it became swiftly more and more apparent, left Sri Lanka in a place towards the beginning of this year where it didn't really have any money left. And it owed its foreign debtors 51 billion, 7 billion of which it was required to pay this year. And so they stopped suddenly being able to import the essential items. Sri Lanka's economy is suffering shortages of food and fuel. The currency has lost nearly half its value on the financial markets. People stopped being able to afford their food. They stopped being able to get petrol for their cars. They stopped being able to go to work. Schools started to be closed down because of power outages. Industry shut down. Farms shut down. And so you got to the point by April where these protests started to gather in the streets. And these are protests from people of all different walks of life. And this movement started to go from beyond calling just for petrol and for food and for low inflation, but actually started to be a movement that called for political change. And this movement started to call itself Aragalaya, literally the people's movement. And they started to call for constitutional change and for an end to corruption and for political accountability. And it was this movement that ultimately toppled Gotabaya Rajapaksa. Hannah, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, often just called Gota, is a former military leader. He's someone who's been accused of war crimes, of disappearing activists and journalists. Did he try to crush this movement violently? And why wasn't he able to do that? Yeah, so to go back to November 2019, he was 
elected on the back of this huge wave of ultra-nationalism that took hold in Sri Lanka. Gotabaya Rajapaksa, his reputation was as this military man who had ended the civil war. In the north, he's known as this kind of war criminal. He's seen as responsible for committing terrible crimes against Tamil civilians, of activists, of opposition politicians. But in the South, he was revered. He was seen as this powerful, strong man. He promised economic growth. He promised the triumph of the Sinhalese Buddhists. And he was the man who would push the country to great heights. He, he could make Sri Lanka great again. Yeah, I mean, he could. <laughs> but the reality of Gotabaya Rajapaksa is that he had absolutely no political experience at all. He managed over the space of two and a half years to essentially alienate an entire vote base by, I guess, the sheer power of economic failure. People felt suddenly like they'd voted for this man to make Sri Lanka strong and powerful, and then they couldn't even get hold of their basic needs. And I guess that includes members of the police, of the army, of all of these forces who would have been used to keep his regime in power. Absolutely, yeah. He was seen to sort of lose authority over these different forces. Much as we say this has been peaceful protests, there have been a lot of protests that have been very severely beaten by police, that have been you know, hit with tear gas. These violent mechanisms of the state have been used against protesters, not as much as some people expected, but certainly there have been incidents of people being beaten by police very ruthlessly. Okay, so with Rajapaksa gone, the temporary president is now another Sri Lankan political figure, Ranil Wickremesinghe. And today, Wednesday, the Sri Lankan parliament is going to vote to decide if he stays in that role or if someone else takes over. In his first address as acting president, Ranil Wickremesinghe told the country he had instructed the military and police to, quote, do whatever is necessary to restore order. So what do Sri Lanka's protesters think of that, of the prospect of Ranil becoming the new president? So he's just very much part of this old guard of politics that the people on the streets are desperately trying to remove. We have been listening to the same old record for so many years mm. and there's been no, no change. The country has gone into economic slums. Yeah, so, yeah. So uh, we, have, we have no faith or any belief in uh, Ranil. And so by the time it got to the point where it looked like Gotabaya Rajapaksa was about to resign, people were horrified at the prospect that the person who would take his place was Ranul. He was the opposite of what they've been calling for. So this huge movement started to build up where it was Ranul go home. Ranil go home! Ranil go home! In the space of even a week, Ranul Wickremesinghe is now spoken almost in the same breath of hatred as Gotabaya Rajapaksa is. And so for the protesters, there's a feeling of, of having gotten rid of, of one of their targets, who was Rajapaksa, and now having to turn immediately to the next target, which is Ranul Wickremesinghe. Exactly. And so what happened on the 13th, which is the day that, you know, it looked very likely that Gotabaya was going to resign, people marched towards the Prime Minister's house. The move spurred thousands of protesters to storm the Prime Minister's office. And here they were met with tear gas again. You know, I was there on the ground. It was, it got, you know, they were firing tear gas left, right and centre. And as someone rightly pointed out, this is about 13-year-old tear gas. So it's particularly grim and toxic. And we can feel the tear gas on our skin now. A lot of people here have been tear gassed, but they're not giving up. They still want to get inside. And they were surging there to make this point, saying, 
Ronald must resign at the same time as Gotabaya. He is not the president that we want. He's not the solution that we've been calling for. So initially, there was huge pushback against uh, these protesters, just as there had been on the Saturday when people went into the president's house. And just as happened on the Saturday, they managed to overcome them. Suddenly, this wall of police and military guys just kind of moved aside and they climbed over the gates and they took it over. It was a very symbolic moment again of people saying, we do not want Ranul. And so, Hannah, if Raniel is elected president on Wednesday, how will this protest movement react? What do you expect that they'll do? There is a sense that, you know, if Raniel is in charge, the chances of accountability for the Rajapaksas is almost nothing. And lots of people say that the same thing will happen to him that happened to Gotha. And this is a very dangerous cycle that you can get into, right? So it could have very turbulent consequences for Sri Lanka if he is put in place because he doesn't have the legitimacy of the people and people feel that they can topple leaders who aren't legitimate. Coming up, for the movement to change Sri Lanka, why unseating the president might have been the easy part. Hannah, as we're recording this, Sri Lanka's parliament is preparing to decide the country's next president. And the protesters really hope it isn't Ranul Wickremesinghe or any of these remnants of the old regime. And it seems like the movement, this Gotta Go Gama movement, is confronting a much bigger question here, which is how do you change a system? Like, they've gotten rid of one particular leader, but how do they change all of these people who are standing behind him? Do they have any answers on how to do that? Like, what are they proposing as an alternative way to run Sri Lanka? So what they have done is they come up with a list of demands. And one of these demands is to have a kind of people's council who will consult with parliament and who will be the voice of the Aragalea in parliament. The sort of realities of that are very unclear. And I think, you know, when you speak to people on the ground, they're spending a lot of time with protesters at the moment trying to understand what people want from this. And what's very apparent is people want very different things. Once Gotha has gone, there's a lot of agendas that have been brought in. Some people see this as a political movement. Some people say, OK, well, we're going to need the Aragalaya political party who will run in the next election. Some people are saying Aragalaya should literally have a say in who's president. We are building up a new um, constitution. We are writing up one and we are trying to Oh, so what, within Gotha Gogama, you're kind of yeah. writing up your own constitution? Our own constitution as in the Sri Lankan constitution for Sri Lanka. Wow. Because we need something like that because our constitution is really old yeah. and it's not even ours in a way because it was colonialised and came to Sri Lanka. A lot of people on the streets say, no, this isn't a political movement at all. That's the opposite of what we want from this. We want it to be a much more social activist where we will just put pressure in various points. And there is this question of will a leader emerge? And then is it necessary to have a leader in order to implement what you want? The paradigm shift must take place. So a lot of intellectual, spiritual work mm-hmm. uh, yet to happen. But uh, we can do because the uh, hard way we have come for three months. They've laid out a very, very interesting set of demands, which includes accountability and representation. Even very interestingly, talking about holding the Rajapaksas and the regime to account for war crimes, which is a huge deal to be established in the South. So they do have a specific set of demands, but there seems to be a a real question mark over how the Aragalea will actually use this power they have and how it will be used to sort of change the system. 
And Hannah, when we last spoke to you, you said that there was this spot of hopefulness amid all of the misery in the country, which was that Sri Lanka seemed to be changing. All of these old divisions that used to divide the island seemed to be dissolving and people were kind of coming together under common demands and a feeling that they had a lot more in common than what used to divide them. It sounds like if this movement can overcome Ranul Wickremesinghe and everything that the old regime can throw at them, there is still the much bigger challenge, which is trying to build something to take its place. Absolutely. I mean, it's super interesting that people are talking about the resistance to ultra-nationalist, divisive politics in the South, in Colombo. This movement is still trying to heal these divides. It's not going to happen overnight. I guess the point of this being is it's political protest, but it's also not an like an all parties sort of coming together and all communities sort of coming together. Mm-hmm. So there is a bit of a division within that. So because like, again, opinions on the Aragala is also divided, but then also the implications of it politically are also very divided. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, very, very divided. You have to remember that Sri Lanka is also dealing with this terrible economic crisis, which is the most urgent thing. And so in terms of rebuilding the state, it's not really on the forefront of people's minds. Like, the most urgent thing is that they have some semblance of a government who can negotiate an IMF deal so they can get some money in, so they can talk to the international community, so that people can actually start living their lives again. People are talking about famine on Sri Lanka's horizon, which is just absolutely crazy for a country which was, you know, seen as this rising star of South Asia. It was seen as very much as a success story. This kind of taints, I guess, this question of... How do we rebuild? Because in the moment, there is this very pressing question of, well, how do we eat? It's an incredible moment of optimism, but there are also huge questions of what can be done with this. If it can continue as a movement which very much is sort of defiantly peaceful and which is trying to sort of be very constructive in its engagement with the government, then I think then there is the real possibility of harnessing this to be constructive. Well, Hannah, it's tragic and exciting and fascinating. And we're really glad that you're on the ground covering for us. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mike. That was Hannah Ellis-Peterson, The Guardian's South Asia correspondent. Thank you so much to her. You can read all her coverage of the events in Sri Lanka at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles. Sound designed by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. And we're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 